0: amen. On our top 10 list today, we're down to our second word. We're almost to the finish line. And I hope you've learned something during this season as we've looked at God's top 10 list, uh, the 10 commandments. We have one more week. Next week, we will finish up this series. and, And I really encourage you, I hope that you can be here next week. I think it'll be a powerful worship service as we we end this series uh, on the 10 words. But as we look at this second word, if you know your Bible at all, you'll know that this was a challenge for the nation of Israel, this second word. Keeping this commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not make for yourself an idol. The second word to us In Exodus. This was a tough commandment for the Israelites to keep. They struggled with this one. Uh, And you would think on the surface it would seem pretty straightforward. Just don't make any idols. But before we kind of dive into this word, this commandment, I want us again to take a step back and remind you of the context and the importance of these 10 words as I've noted before, the Bible doesn't actually use the word commandment when it talks about these ten, but rather it says they are God's ten words. And so throughout this series, we've used that, these words from God. And sometimes you'll hear the statement that this is called the Decalogue, and that's just a Greek, fancy Greek word, deca meaning ten, and logos meaning word, the ten words. Words, the Decalogue. This is the Decalogue, and, and these are God's, as I've said over and over and over again, and I'm going to continue to say it over and over and over again. These are God's words for us, words that offer life. Oftentimes, as we've said, we we have we have looked at the Ten Commandments as just a list of rules, a list of don'ts, a list of things we shouldn't do or cannot do, but they are not so much as a list of rules, but an invitation. To life. That's what these 10 words are. They reveal to us the way to live in healthy and whole relationships with each other and with God. They are an invitation to abundant life. These are 10 words that bring life. 10 words that God offers to us so that we can be in covenant that we can be in covenant with each other. We have talked about covenant before in covenant language. and, And we have talked about covenant in the past is when God wants to make covenant with us, oftentimes the image that is used is the image of marriage. And that's how we look at these 10 words. It is a covenant. Covenant is an important idea and word in our theology as Christians. We serve a God who seeks to be in covenant relationship with us. I want you to let that sink in. We serve a God who wants to be in covenant relationship with us. And we see that over and over again in how the Bible is written. We have covenant language throughout Scripture. And and there are whole books and series of books written on this idea of covenant in Scripture, that we serve a covenant-making God who desires to be in covenant with us. In fact, we... Uh, we've talked about this in past sermons, but I'm just gonna bring it up here today as we're kind of finishing up, is that these 10 words follow an ancient pattern of covenant making, what is known as a suzerain vassal treaty. When's the last time you've used that in conversation? Today, here we go. A suzerain vassal treaty. This was an ancient way that the people of God would understand immediately when God invites them. These were treaties that the ancient people in the ancient Near East made all the time. Let me explain how it worked. The overlord or suzerain would make a covenant with his servants or vassals in in an agreement that was to benefit both parties. Uh, The overlord or suzerain would provide protection for the servants, for the vassals, and remind them, hear, hear this, it would remind them of the great and gracious things that he has done as the overlord. And then the stipulations of the covenant would be stated, and the vassals are expected to keep these stipulations out of thanksgiving for the generosity of the overlord. So you had these, the the, the one in power, the overlord, the overlord, the suzerain, would provide protection over the vassals. And in respect the vassals, would then serve and help the overlord as well, work the farms, those kind of things. This was the type of treaty that was, was common throughout the ancient Near East. And we see this over and over again. This is how ancient treaties worked. But as the ultimate suzerain, God went way beyond a typical covenant arrangement of the day so that we could comprehend his overwhelming Grace, this is important. This is really important for us to understand. We must understand this key concept of God, this key idea of who God is in our faith. Hear this out, God's grace and invitation always comes first before the stipulations of the law. God's grace since the beginning always comes first before he gives the law. God saves first, and then he invites to a covenant. God gives grace first. For the Israelites, his grace and mercy were shown by his deliverance from slavery in Egypt. The Israelites were in an impossible situation with no hope, no, f- no freedom, no hope for the future, no hope but day after day after day, slavery and a menial existence. Then God shows up offers and showers grace. He sends his servant Moses, you know the story, to offer a way out and by God's mighty hand, he subdues Pharaoh and Pharaoh finally relents and lets the people go. God's grace was shown in his deliverance and it was further shown when they encountered the Red Sea. You remember the Israelites came to the Red Sea. God parted the Red Sea. They walked through on dry ground and then the armies were destroyed. It was an amazing deliverance. God saved them. God saved them. They had done nothing, but God offered salvation first. Do you hear that? We serve a God who offers salvation and freedom first. God offers salvation, and then God gives us the 10 words. But the beautiful thing about these 10 words is that if the people keep them, then they will have a good, abundant life. These are words that brought life and freedom to a people who were enslaved and hopeless. God's gift of grace always comes first. So let's return to our text this morning and and read it again. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in the heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Here's the irony of this word. Remember, the the people are standing around the the, the base of Mount Sinai as Moses is up top, and and God is speaking to Moses, and God is giving Moses these 10 words. And what happens down below? The people are getting restless. They're getting impatient. How long is Moses going to be up there? I mean, we got things to do, God. I mean, it's not like you just let us from slavery, but. So they're getting impatient. They're wondering if Moses has abandoned them. They're wondering if God has abandoned them. And so what do they do? They demand Aaron, who Moses left in charge, to do something for them. They're like, Aaron, you got to do something. You got to help us out. So they take matters into their own hand. And if God isn't going to speak to us. Listen, church, if God isn't going to speak to us. If God is absent and we're not hearing from him, then we will make a God that will. And and what does Aaron do? Remember the story? He gathers up all the gold earrings and, and, and with a plan to make their God. Yahweh into an idol of gold and he has them melt down the gold into this golden calf and then what does Aaron say? He says this here is your gods who brought you out of Egypt and they built an altar to this god and then they had this great festival to celebrate to this god. God is literally writing these words on two tablets and the text in fact, the text says that the finger of God wrote on the tablets. And as they're being written, the people are down at the bottom of the mountain celebrating to an idol, saying, this idol is their God. Isn't that crazy? It's one of those moments that we wonder, "What? how stupid can they be, right? How stupid can we be? But it's often the case for all of us. How often... When we get scared or impatient, we look for something that we can touch or feel, something tangible to make us feel better, to make us more secure, something that takes the place of God. Just think about it. The people had witnessed the miracle of the 10 plagues that God visited on the Egyptians and Pharaoh. These 10 plagues were a direct attack Against the gods of Pharaoh, basically telling Pharaoh and the Egyptians, Your gods have no power over Yahweh. Idols have no power. They had witnessed the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea, but because they couldn't control or see this God in their hour of so called need, they wanted to make an idol. I see it happen over and over again. In my life, I'm guilty. I've seen it in your life as well. We worship idols. Now, for most of us, we don't bow down to little golden calves. But hear me out. This is so important for our understanding of this second word from God to us. When do we bow down to these idols in our lives? Typically, not when things are great. Typically, when everything is smooth, When everything is going easy, when things are good, it's easy for us to say, Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. It's all good. When things are going good, it's easy for us to acknowledge God. But oh, when we suffer, when we have pain, it's easy to turn to an idol. An idol is whatever we turn to when we're in pain or when we feel alone. When we feel powerless, when we feel afraid, when we want to feel safe and yet we don't feel God, we too often turn to idols. The problem with these idols though is that they never truly satisfy. They, they feel part of the whole, but, but they never really fill the void that God is designed to fill. It will always fail us. It will always fail to do what we want it to do. These idols deceive us. And the more we chase after these idols, the more we end up as slaves. And what is God trying to do? Free us from slavery. The more we chase after these idols, the more we end up as slaves. God knows that chasing these idols will leave us in slavery. God, but God has sought to free us And too often, in our pain, in our struggle, in our suffering, that serving idols often leads us into immorality that God is trying to protect us from. Hear me out. If you study this passage in Exodus, it talks about the people making the golden calf and, they, and then their, their worship of it and then they celebrate. Here's the interesting part. There's an interesting parallel to the worship that God calls them to do, that God commanded them to do, and the worship that they actually do to this idol. It's almost identical. The worship that they do is almost identical. Now, we don't have time to go into all the parallels, but the way they worship the golden calf is very close to the worship that they were commanded to do for God. But it was just slightly off. It was perverted. What does perverted mean? The alteration of something from its original course, meaning, or state, to a distortion or corruption of what was first intended. That's what perverted mean. Let me read it again. The alteration of something from its original course, meaning, or state, to a distortion or corruption of what was first intended. Their worship was perverted and it actually led them into more perversion. They are turning the true worship of God into a false religion. They are, in a sense, systematically tearing down the work that God has commanded them to do by doing something so very similar that it turns the people's eyes away. They are undoing the good work that God has done. They are perverting the worship of God. We read at the end of this episode these words in Exodus 32, 6. They rose up early the next day after they made the calf and celebrated. They offered burnt offerings, brought sacrifices of well-being, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The English doesn't do it justice. You see that phrase, they, they rose up to revel? In the Hebrew, it implies sexual activity. This is not the worship that God is wanting them to do. It is perverted. And God reminds us that when we turn to idols, it has a devastating effect on us. Let's read about the consequences of keeping this second word. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. The second word teaches that obedience and disobedience has far-reaching implications for us. But again, we have to remember the context of these 10 commandments, these 10 words. They were given to the whole community, to us as a community of faith, as the church, as the whole nation. Hear me out, this is important. I don't believe that if a father commits idolatry, that then his son and grandson and great-grandson then are automatically punished. Because we have other scripture that talks about how each of us individually is responsible to the covenant of God. So what is God telling us here? I believe the intent is to communicate that in the degree in which Israel, the nation, the community, the church, obeys this commandment will have a long-term effect on the health of the nation and on the church. It is a corporate responsibility that is an overarching theme of this verse and not just the individuals. And we also recognize that especially in this day in the way they lived, there would be a grandfather and a father and a son and a grandson all in a one Household. So if the father commits idolatry and leads the whole family, it will affect four generations like that. It's a little bit different context for us today, but it's that, that idea. Do you, do you see how it has devastating effects on a community? If the church begins to practice idolatry, then it will have devastating effects on the generation to follow. We have to be relentless in pursuing God in a way that doesn't pervert His Word. We must be intentional in praying for grace and seeking to live in faith. We must be intentional in humbling ourselves before God, asking for His divine guidance. We must humble ourselves and submit our lives to His Word so that We don't take matters into our own hands when God is silent, when we can't hear Him, when we feel alone. Time after time, we see the nation of Israel seeking after other gods, making idols, perverting the truth, and it has devastating effects on the nation. This is what idolatry does. Whenever we turn from the true God to any other God, it leads us to a religion that might have some of the same attributes of Christianity, but is ultimately perverted and will leave us empty and enslaved. And humans have the amazing ability to make idols of just about anything because we want to be in control. We want to make our infinite God into a finite thing that we can control and manipulate. We want a God that will do what we want him to do. We want a God that is at our beck and call. We want him to show up when we want him to show up. We want a God that doesn't make us wait. We want a God that doesn't make us have faith. So, where does that leave us this morning? Well, like the Israelites, some of you this morning might be waiting at the the foot of Mount Sinai, looking up, knowing God's up there somewhere. But you've been waiting a long time. You've been waiting to receive a word from God. You might be saying, I'm tired of waiting, I'm tired of suffering. I'm just tired of it. And what does the Bible say? Be still and wait upon the Lord. I hate that. I'm, I'm just gonna admit it up front. I hate that. Let's have some action, God. Let's let's let us take control here. We'll we'll get this thing kick started. God says, be still. We have a hard time being still. He wants to be in control. When everything good, we say, oh God, you're in control. When everything bad, I think I'll take that control back. It's an idol. The question comes back to faith. Will you have faith to wait on God, knowing he is in control, that he will move when he decides to move. We are not God. We cannot control God. We are called to wait on him. We are called to trust in him. We are called to have faith. We are not in control, but God is. When you feel empty and lost, don't turn to idols. When you're in pain, I pray that you don't turn to the idols of alcohol, or porn, or eating, or shopping, or fill in the blank. God knew that if we put idols in our life, it will leave us enslaved. And we serve a God who wants to free us. I pray that we all have faith to trust in God and to seek him in those days of waiting. Let us pray.